This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. Today's uh, guest on Spear Factor, Spear Fishing Podcast, is Mr. Pete Coriel. He is a spearfishing guide and world traveler. I mean, he's been to more places than I can remember, uh, but he's spent so much time um, guiding people around. He's got just a ton of knowledge and experience and a real professional spearfishing guide. He's spent months, probably years, in Baja and in Panama. He's gone to Africa, Ascension Island. He's taken some world-class, gigantic dream fish um, of all different species, wahoo, yellowfin, and he's our guest today. So I hope you guys enjoy the show. Thanks. And don't forget, if you want to step up your spearfishing this summer, go ahead and check out spearfishingmentor.com. There's spearfishing classes. One of them's for free give you a little bit of an idea of what to expect. If you were to purchase the master class, there's over five hours of information on there for you guys. So be sure to check out spearfishingmentor.com. Now I'd like to thank our sponsor, Mr. Ted Hardy of Immersion Freediving. Uh, enter promo code SPEARFACTOR for 15% off uh, on his 28-day freediving transformation course. And uh, it's pretty awesome. I've used it and I recommend it. So you can find this course and the other courses Ted puts out for us at freedivingsafety.com. Um, like I said, enter the promo code SPEARFACTOR for the discount. And thanks, Ted, for sponsoring the show. Our next sponsor is Hot Rod Spear Guns. Uh, Paul's offered us 10% discount with a promo code SPEARFACTOR. So thanks, Paul, for making badass guns and uh, providing a hookup for our listeners. And Camiris Side Slip. So Kamira Side Slip, you can purchase those at Kamira Spearfishing. That's K-I-M-E-R-A. And basically, I've talked about the side slip before on the show. It's kind of the benefits of a slip tip without worrying about breaking your tip hunting around rocks. Uh, it replaces the flopper with a side slip. Uh, check it out more at the website. And if you use promo code SPEARFACTOR, all lowercase, at checkout, they'll give you 5% off. And if you'd like to uh, sponsor Spear Factor Podcast, feel free. Uh, you can go ahead and shoot me a note on the website, spearfactor.com. Thank you. Hey, welcome back to the Spear Factor Spirit Fishing Podcast. Uh, it's Brett, and I'm here with Mr. Pete Coriel. Um, is that correct, Peter? That is correct. Yeah, well done. <laughs> Thank you. It only took me twice. Uh, Peter, so I think you managed to uh, fly under the radar for some reason. I don't know. Maybe you're just too like elusive. Nobody can catch you. But I got to say, I'm super excited to be talking to you right now. And um, I just want to pick your brain on so many things. But really quick, let's go farther back and 
how did you get into spearfishing? I know everybody asks this question, but I think you're kind of unique because mm-hmm. you're originally from the East Coast, correct? Like correct, Pennsylvania yeah. or? No, I'm actually from the, the New York area. Okay. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it's when everyone always asks, you know, they're like, oh, it's like the spearfishing on the East Coast. So uh, I live out in Long Island on the east end of Long Island, um, where uh, unbeknownst to a lot of people that spearfish that aren't familiar with the area, we have really, really good spearfishing um during parts of the year it's not the winter time it's uh we're not spearfishing there in the winter time but um during our spring summer and fall months we have some pretty amazing spearfishing yeah i heard that you guys have some amazing spearfishing offshore too we were talking about big eye and big eye tuna and you really kind of venture out to the banks and and uh i don't know it's just, i heard it's wide open actually <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, it can be, it's, it can be insane, um, out there. It's just very, it's a big commitment. It's very fickle. Um, but when it is on, it's, it's pretty amazing. We had, there were some years where we just had, it was just unbelievable. And then, you know, it's cyclic. So every year is a bit different, but, um, we actually, the last couple of years, we haven't been out offshore spearfishing as much as we used to just because it was a little bit fickle but we definitely had we had a couple of years or more than a, a handful of years where it was yeah i would consider it wide open it was it was pretty insane um and then our inshore fisheries are amazing that stuff's really consistent it's like you just kind of go and it's you know you can like kind of you know uh just jog on down to the dock at like two in the afternoon and run out and like you know you're going to be on the fish which is pretty cool we have a pretty pretty uh pretty large amount of different species inshore that are all really good to eat so it's it's pretty cool it's like the harvester's paradise between like the shellfish and the and the inshore fish and um and then our our land hunting as well it's pretty cool a lot of people don't realize that so it's pretty you know that we have all that out out on long island it's pretty cool uh, it's, I'm a little familiar with that too, just from my own experience living back east. Uh, it, for being a Californian and moving out there, and realizing, wow, everything's so green, and wow, you mm-hmm. can actually <laughs> there's actually waves too, and you know, yeah, yeah. Um, well, quick question: So, what do you do now? So, I am a spearfishing guide, and I also, for the last year, uh, I've been running a boat for a very close friend of mine as kind of this like semi uh part-time kind of gig uh we use the boat mostly for spearfishing we all also do rod and reel fishing on it as well um so yeah but my whole life for the last uh almost i guess 13 or 14 years has been you know spearfishing guide it's my whole life revolves around it basically so um so that was kind of the path i almost uh unintentionally chose to take in life as my career um so yeah where um when you say unintentionally what were your plans before that uh didn't really have much of a plan to be honest um i basically when i was growing up i mean listen i i I literally barely made it through high school i'm lucky i even got a uh diploma um and i was always you know when i was younger i all I could really care about was surfing and fishing and spearfishing and hunting and all that stuff. So I was kind of, uh, I just, I didn't really have much of, uh, I was, I was just basically working, always working, whether it was commercial fishing or banging nails or, or whatever I could do to make some money just to like, kind of get myself on that, on the next trip or adventure somewhere. Um, and then ultimately I ended up starting a spearfishing outfitter down in Panama with a buddy. Um, and from there, and I was actually reluctant to do that at first. Um, I had kind of given the idea to this buddy of mine, not with the intention of being involved. And then he was like, listen, and he actually wasn't even a spear fisherman. He was a surfer. And he was like, oh, I'm going to start this, this business, but I can't do it without you. Do you want to get involved? And I was kind of hes- hesitant at first. And then the rest is kind of history. We, uh, we started the outfitter and, and that was a, a real big part of my life for a while. And, uh, it was definitely like the craziest times of my life for sure um it's it's fun to to look back on that stuff now i got a little bit of nostalgia for it um but yeah that and then from there you know running that outfitter i then started 
you know, that was, that's how I started my career as a spearfishing guide. And from there it grew into what it is today, you know, and I, I started, then I started, uh, funny enough, I met Tim Hatler down in Panama. He came and did a, a trip with me down there. We actually did a trip swap. Um, so he came down, we gave him a free trip. And then in turn, I came down and, and did a trip with him in Mexico. And, you know, from that, from there, I started working with Tim. I started helping him run all his Pacific side trips. I did that for years. So I would, I would basically, I would spend part of the year down in Panama and then I would go back home, um, for the, basically the summer back to Long Island. And I would, uh, commercial spearfish to make some money and kind of, kind of just hang out for the summer, do the commercial spearfishing thing to make some money. And then I would be down in Baja, um, starting in the fall. And I would do that usually like right up till Christmas. And then I'd have a little time before I went back down to Panama to go do other trips or whatever. Um, and then from there, you know, it's expanded into other things. I mean, I had like a year and a half where I was kind of like exclusively traveling with, with clients, um, and then kind of doing some other stuff in between their trips. But so every year is like a little bit different. Um, but that's kind of how it all, all evolved. Um, so, so you're basically doing like, uh, trips to Panama and to Cabo. Is that it? Or I'm sorry. Cabo, no, 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 no. Yeah, I, mean, I, yeah, I do. I do trips to all different places. Um, but I was for about 10 years, I, I will say consistently spending most of my time running trips in Panama, in Baja, Mexico. Um, and then I started also doing Africa. So I've been going to Africa every year, I guess for the last four years, um, for, I'm usually down there for almost a month and that's in the fall. Um, and I also do trips, uh, to all different places. I mean, I've been all over. Um, so it's, everything's, it's always different. It depends on what's going on with clients and so on and so forth. And where, you know, it, it's just, it's, there's the consistency is so different each year. Um, and now of course, with this new boat that I'm running for my buddy, we're, you know, that is a part of my schedule as well. So, you know, we use the boat mostly during the, the summer months, though I have the boat down in um, Florida right now, which, you know, we're, the whole point of that is to use the boat over in the Bahamas whenever we can to go um, spearfishing over there, which if you haven't done that, the Bahamas is an amazing, amazing place to spearfish. Of course, you can't use spear guns there. You have to use only pole spears and Hawaiian slings, but um, a pretty amazing, a pretty amazing spearfishing destination. Yeah. So how did you get into the Africa thing? I mean, I feel like Africa, I, I've been there myself for work, but uh, I feel like to us on the West, we don't even consider a place like that just because the distance or the time or the commitment or something, I don't know, but there's a lot of people that don't think about that maybe because of the money that, you know, like I said, the cost and the time to get there, but how did you get into it personally? Yeah. Good question. Um, so and actually going back to kind of what you're saying, I, it's funny, you know, Africa, most people certainly like when they think of Africa, they don't immediately think of fishing and or spearfishing. They kind of, you think of like safaris and big game hunting and stuff like that. Um, and of course, you know, there's a whole lot of coastline in Africa and amazing spearfishing, amazing fishing. There's really good waves, of course. Um, so Africa, there's, a bunch of different really good places to spearfish. Um, and there's of course a big spearfishing culture in South Africa. Um, my kind of connection to Africa is through a guy that I work with, who's all a close friend and, and, and associate that I work with down there, a guy by the name of Eric Allard, who is the man actually, I was funny enough, just talking to him this morning and he is from Africa. He grew up in Kenya, um, great diver. And he is, he runs spearfishing trips on the East coast of Africa and the area that he is in. He's like him and his partner were like the first guys to really run trips there. Um, and you know, the big draw to, to going over there to spearfish are the big dog tooth tuna. And certainly, um, you know, something that kind of put that area on the map was, um, years ago, Cameron Kirkconnell and, and Brad Thurnborough and, and a couple of their other buddies were over there and shot these, two giant doggies. It's a crazy story. They both shot these two giant doggies, like basically back to back. And, um, they were within like a, whatever it was a pound of each other. And one of them became 
would have been a world record. There's a whole long story why they didn't officially consider it a world record. But so that that certainly um, created some hype around that area. Um, and funny enough, Eric, before I even met him in person, this was like years ago, reached out to me and asked if I wanted to come down and help him guide um, during his spearfishing season down there. And at the time, I remember being like intrigued by it, but I was so deep into the Panama thing that I was just completely like preoccupied with that. And the time frame to go down to Africa would have overlapped with Baja. So I was, I kind of like, I, I declined the offer. Um, and then, you know, eventually um, it's funny, you know, as, as you know, with the spearfishing community, it's so small and there's certainly like a lot of camaraderie and everyone kind of knows everyone. Um, before I even like met Eric in person, you know, we had corresponded on so many different things. I've kind of felt like I knew the guy and he ended up reaching out to me a while back about doing a trip in Baja with a client of his. And, uh, you know, he of course wasn't familiar with the area. So he reached out to me to see if I could put something together for him. We ended up doing this. I actually did the trip with Tim Hatler and then Eric and Eric's client and a couple other guys, um, David Ochoa, who's an awesome, amazing spear fisherman and videographer and guide. Another guy, Barrett Harvey, who's who's the man. Um, and we kind of did this amazing uh, dream trip for this client of Eric's who I've actually become really close with. And ultimately, we did a bunch of other trips for him as well. Um, I've done Panama with that guy and, and Bahamas, et cetera, et cetera. So from there, I got to know Eric really well. And then um, I started taking clients down to Africa. And then it just kind of turned into a, a yearly thing. There was, you know, there started for me, my, there started to become like a demand for my clients to want to go over there specifically to, to you know, chase those big, uh, those big doggies. Um, but yeah, it's an amazing, amazing destination. There's, uh, a big variety of, uh, of game fish. There's the big doggies, of course, there's big GTs, there's Wahoo, there's billfish, uh, yellowfin tuna. There's all the reef species as well. Job fish, long nose emperor, um, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, obviously there's a lot of species of fish there that we don't get on our side of the world, which is, uh, you know, a big a big draw for that, for that destination. The water's super clear, you know, beautiful white sand beaches, super clear, warm water, tons of fish. And one great thing too, like kind of an added bonus is they don't have, at least in that area, they don't have ciguatera. So you, you, you know, you can shoot all these cool reef species that in a lot of other places you can't really eat because of the ciguatera and there, you don't have to worry about that. So yeah, pretty, pretty amazing destination for sure. Yeah, I remember when I was over there, I saw some massive groupers. Um, I think just the abundance of fish is what kind of blew me away. Um, like the region I was in, I, I think the fish had never seen a diver in their life. And they just mm. like swim up to you. And I wasn't even spearing. It was just insane um, at the time. But uh, yeah, uh, how about how is the accommodations and just the I mean, where are you guys, is this in, this is on the East coast. Is this mm -hmm. like Latham Island area or like Mozambique? It is. Or yeah. Canada? That the Zanzibar uh -huh. Latham area. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Um, but Mozambique has great diving as well. Right. Wow. And you just kind of fell into this just from your, like starting that Panama place, the, the Panama uh, outfitter. And kind of just one thing led to another where hosting, uh, you started just meeting more people that are like-minded like you. Is that pretty much? Yeah. It, yeah, exactly. I mean, the Panama, like during our busiest season, forget what it was. We did like a crazy, at that point we were, we were running two boats at a time. So we would have like two groups of four and I forget, we ran some crazy number of, it, it, we were so busy. Like at one point, I think it was like 30 groups one season or something so there was just so many we were doing so many we we're doing back-to-back -back trips meeting all different people obviously we had people that were coming back every year or whatever it was so you know it all that that the whole panama thing for me was kind of the catalyst into what my spearfishing quote-unquote guide career evolved into what it is now but that's kind of how it led into all these different things and and but certainly my connection to africa is uh, my friend eric who like i said lives is from there lives there 
runs, you know, has his whole spearfishing business or whatever. Um, so that was like, obviously, you know, I knew about the place and, and knew how good the diving was. And, and, but, you know, ultimately my connection to it is, is Eric. So when you're traveling and all this stuff, um, like what, what say you're going for big doggies, what gear considerations do you use? Like when you're traveling to, uh, places like, well, for starters, I guess some of those places spearfishing, you always got to check the le- legality, like the legal, the laws and all that stuff like that. And some of those traveling or traveling through some of those countries, I know their spear guns are illegal and some of them over there. Um, yeah, for yeah, sure. And I don't, <laughs> um, which actually led me to think about getting more into pole spearing just because, I mean, good Lord, there was a, probably a world record on every dive with a pole spear at one point. Um, right. Yeah. What kind of gear do you like to use uh, for your trip? for your trips um i mean obviously specific to the destination of course uh but for me the guns that i prefer to use are um i'm sure you've heard of them uh alamani which is a gun builder out of italy uh-huh. um it's a guy named itio who is uh, a, a really really cool nice guy who, who builds these amazing uh roller guns um and that's basically all i use and it's it's a lot of my clients are now, you know, have moved over to using those guns. Um, one thing they have, which is really cool for travel, is they make these two-piece guns. Um, and as they make a couple of, of their models in this two-piece option, all the way up to their biggest, their biggest gun, which is the 135 Vela. So you could, you could basically travel with a quiver of guns that break down into two pieces, including the shafts and would fit into a suitcase, which is pretty cool. It just makes, uh, makes your life easier. Um, you know, certainly, uh, you can at times save a lot of money on your baggage fees. And then, you know, you kind of, you can't maybe fly a little bit lower under the radar when, you know, going back to what you were saying about, you know, tra- having to travel through certain countries where spear guns are illegal. Not, not to say that just because they're in two pieces, you can get away with it, but it, it, it you probably, you, you, you fly a little bit lower under the radar. Um, so that's a pretty cool aspect of, of the travel, but yeah, I always, those are the guns that I basically use for everything. Um, and then in terms of, you know, the other, equipment i have with me it's it's kind of specific to to where i'm going like you know for doggies you're typically always using at least two three atmos style floats like in africa we don't you don't even hunt the reef typically without two floats you know in the event that you do see a big doggy you know you never know when when and where you're going to see him and and you know the idea of trying to hunt those fish without especially on a deep drop-off type of scenario without with less than two floats is kind of wishful thinking so you know like i'll give you an example if i were to go to say panama or what i what i recommend for everyone going to panama to sh- try to shoot tuna is you know your big tuna gun whatever that might be and a hundred foot bungee and one three atmos float there's really no need especially if you're using a bungee there really isn't need for a second float um and the bungees they really they they put a hurting on those fish i mean there's so much drag and obviously you know stretching those things out to their capacity depending on what you know like a rife 100 foot bungee stretches to whatever like 250 or 300 feet or whatever it puts a lot of hurting on those fish and you know you're not it's not like a doggy you're not hunting them over like a reef drop off they're not going into the reef so you can get away with using the bungees. Um, and, you know, like I said, one float plenty for that. Um, but then on the other hand, you know, what I recommend like on our Africa trips is a hundred feet of static line and at least two floats, whether it's a rife three Atmos or a Gannett style float. And then having, of course, you know, you have your line in between your two floats, whether it's a bungee or a static line. I like to use a bungee in between the two floats. So, you know, it varies from from destination to destination, of course. And then, you know, everyone's got their own kind of, you know, style of how they set up their gear or what they like to use or, or whatever it might be. Now, that's awesome. That's awesome. That makes sense. I mean, um, have you traveled more within Latin America, the, other than Panama and, and Baja with Tim? 
uh, specifically with Tim? Or just in general, like other than oh, going to uh, La Ventana and then also Panama, are you still continuing to travel down there? Yeah, I do. Yeah. And I, I go to, I actually used to live in Costa Rica back in the day, but yeah, Costa Rica and, and I dove in Ecuador a bit. And, uh, but yeah, mostly Panama and Baja. And then, you know, for me, Baja, I spent a lot of time over on that Pacific side zone. Um, but I've also spent a ton of time in the Sea of Cortez, but yeah, mostly, you know, mostly Baja. I mean, the time I've spent in diving in Panama and Baja amounts to literally years. Um, so that's where I've spent, you know, most of my time in that part of the world. Um, and then, you know, I've traveled all over to, to, to different, you know, all the way over to Solomon islands on the other side of the planet. So it's, you know, there's been a bunch of different destinations that I've spent time in. Yeah. And so what, so you've done all this stuff. I mean, are you just going to focus on Africa now, or do you have goals? Like what's your goals in the future? Are there fish? Cause I know you've shot numerous <laughs> extremely large fish did you have any like personal goals mm-hmm. yeah good question i mean yeah i guess everyone you always have like your kind of like your little your white whales from each species um and i you know i guess it's you always you're, you're i guess it's good to always kind of have goals because it kind of keeps you going but um you know for me you know, specific to like certain species and sizes or whatever. I, you know, in ter- for yellowfin, I think ever, anyone that's like an avid yellowfin tuna guy, that 300 mark is kind of like a, a benchmark number. Um, that's some, I've, I've shot plenty over 200, that's for sure, but I've never, never hit that 300 mark. And that's definitely like a, you know, trophy once in a lifetime t- type of fish. Um, of course, a big doggy, you know, 200 and you know whatever 200 plus pound doggy is a is a is a fish of a lifetime um grander marlin thousand pound you know the thousand pound mark on a big marlin um i actually got it's funny the uh our our striped bass fishery they they this is a couple years ago they they put a closure on they basically created a slot limit on our regulations so you can't really shoot those big fish anymore which kind of sucks for us spear fishermen but i do you know i i kind of understand why they did it and it and it i'm i'm for it though it though it does it does kind of suck that we can't take those big fish but funny enough the year before they implemented that um i shot literally like 60 basically on it was like 60 and a half pound striper and for me and i think for a lot of guys in our in from our area that 60 pound number is kind of a benchmark number and and you know there's that it's just a mat that's just a matter of time and kind of luck you know you can every year you always shoot a couple 50 pounders but that 60 is is kind of like a once in a lifetime fish i was lucky enough to get that fish the year before they implemented the closure on the big fish and that was kind of cool yeah i had heard uh i was diving this weekend with um one of the a guy from the from rhode island he was telling me about that slot limit and part of the problems he had with it is like, it's kind of hard. It's such a narrow slot limit for Spiros yeah. where they're like, wait a second. Is that how many inches is that? Let me yeah. figure it out. Yeah. But uh, I mean, everybody agrees. It's a good idea. It makes sense. I guess you could say. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So I'm like, as much as I'm kind of like, Oh, that sucks. It's I, I get it. You know, and I, and listen, someday they might when the stocks things change, they might, um, you know, they might go back to, to letting us take those bigger fish so who knows so are you um are you living are you back in uh right now are you back in the northeast are you back in new york i i am i'm actually as we speak in vermont um i've kind of, this last month has been like a crazy whirlwind of travel um i uh i was just down in panama um that was a couple weeks ago i was actually in north carolina turkey hunting and then i went basically uh almost straight from north i went from north carolina to charleston then for like a night in charleston to miami for a night and then i was down in panama for two weeks or whatever eight, eight or nine days and then uh came back to florida for a couple of days i had to run the boat up to lauderdale and then i was in charleston for two nights and then i flew up to new york my buddies picked me up at the airport we came up to vermont to turkey hunt which i'm i'm here now and then i'll uh i'll head back out to my home in long island for probably most of the next week and then i got to go back down to florida for some stuff on the boat 
um, doing some mechanical work. And then hopefully we, we will be running, have the boat all ready to go to run over and do a big Bahamas trip before I run the boat back up to New York for the summer. So I'm kind of just jumping around all over right now. So back to the Panama thing, because that's super interesting to me, is that mm -hmm. um, what what is the time? What is the season like in Panama? Mm, yeah, good question. Um, so basically for spearfishing, it's like January till the end of May. Um, you know, the tuna, they're basically there all year, but like the prime time for, for tuna is usually like March, April, May. The, you know, as you get into every year is a little different. Um, as you get into like the end of April, you start getting into like rainy season. Some years it's, it starts later. Some years it starts earlier. Um, so like the weather and the rainy thing starts to happen. Like I said, usually the end of April, but it's kind of coincides with like prime tuna, tuna season. Now, like earlier in the year, like January, February, March, is like dry season the weather is very predictable it's usually you know no wind flat sea states during that time typically um and that's when like the like the reef diving is usually at its best during during those times the water's usually clearest and you get a lot of spawning uh activity with those reef species uh during january uh february and march um and there still can be yellowfin around during that time as well um, so, I mean, typically, you know, most people are going down there, um, you know, just to kind of chase tuna. So you figure March, April, May is like the prime time for that. Like big pargo wise, if you, I've seen things on the Hannibal bank and things like that, like Panama, um, what is your like personal best pargo down there? Good question. Um, trying to think my personal best or i guess my personal best from panama was like i think it was 75 pounds or something like that i think it was 75 or 76 pounds or whatever it was but um i, I it's funny i was just talking about this on on that trip i was just on recently i mean we've man we've taken so many big kuberas down there i mean half the time now we basically pass up on them or decide to take like one a trip um but yeah that you know usually if if I choose to, or uh, on every trip, we usually take one between say 50 and like 65 or 70 pounds. Um, I actually shot one down there in February that was like in that 70 pound class, 60 to 70 pound class. And then, uh, I shot one down there, uh, on that last trip a couple of weeks ago, that was in that like 55 pound class, but yeah, we've taken a, a lot of big big Kuberas down there. Um, and then in, in Baja as well, actually, I think that honestly the biggest besides we see a lot of big Kuberas in the Bahamas, like every trip you see them like hundred pounders, they're just so damn smart. And of course you're hunting them with pole spears. It's that's like a really, that's a real fish of a lifetime, a hundred pound Kubera in the Bahamas. So we see them there very often, but I think some of the biggest ones I've ever seen were actually off Cabo, believe it or not. Like yeah. I, there was, this was years ago. This was like, oh man, it was probably 10 or 12 years ago. I was down on a trip there and we were kind of like going all around the different parts of the Sea of Cortez. And then we ended up down diving off Cabo. And we had one day where there were these, we had these, we saw, we had multiple sightings of these big Kuberas. We, we got pretty close to them too. They were just being, they're smart. You know, those big Kuberas are known for being super intelligent and we just could not close the gap on them and some of them were really really big like 100 pounders easy um so yeah but like i said it's funny every every trip in the Bah, almost every trip in the bahamas you see a 100 pounder and actually what that, that makes me think of i don't know if you saw there was that world record taken down in the bahamas a couple of years ago by that guy luke malis that it was like 130 pounds on a pole spear it was like well, probably one of the sickest if not the sickest spearfishing world record that'll ever happen. You know what I mean? I, I did see that. And as a matter of fact, I couldn't even really fathom it. It was just like, well, that's done. I mean, <laughs> Oh yeah. It's insane. It's like, let like on a, you know, on spear gun, it's insane record. And then, you know, on a pole spear, it's just unbelievable. I was funny enough. I was actually in the Bahamas when that happened, we got like word of it. We were actually out on this, 
we were doing this crazy trip with a bunch of us. We had this like armada of boats. We were like cruising up through the, the Southern Bahamas and we had like satellite internet. So we were, we were staying in touch with everyone. And, and that, I, that news of that fish came through. We were like, Holy shit, that's insane. And I've actually heard, uh, I heard Luke tell the story of that fish on a, on a podcast one time. It was really cool. He shot it with, you know, pole spear, obviously, and with a belt reel. And it was a really, it was a cool story. It was kind of like unexpected that he saw the fish in the place he was, if I remember correctly, but it's pretty cool. Yeah. That's what's so funny with those world records. I mean, there's a, obviously it's skill. It's when you get your opportunity, but sometimes it feels like that opportunity is just pure luck where the fish one day just decides to do something just random and swim you know what i mean yeah for sure where it's just like uh okay the stars aligned and this happened to to me and i was equipped with you know those skill set or whatever it was to make it happen but um yeah yeah, it's so interesting to me um with someone like you that's traveling as much as you do what would be some tips for say an intermediate diver or intermediate spear fisherman and a beginner spearfisherman, I guess that's like going to Baja, going to Panama, going to these places. Like, what do you think some things that, that when this happened to you, as you grew in your maturity, I guess, in traveling and, and diving unique places, what do you think were like some big pointers that helped a lot? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, certainly having, you know, the right contacts, it's probably like your first number one thing. I mean, not to, not to try to discourage anyone from, you know, going to a place where you have, you have no resources, you have no idea, and you're just kind of going in there exploratory. Of course, that's what, you know, that's the purest form of adventure travel for whatever reasons, whether it's spearfishing, surfing or whatever, and, and pro- probably the most gratifying when it comes together. But, you know, when you're, when you're doing it like that, you, you of course have to understand that, you know, going into it, that, you know, maybe the success, you know, success will be judged differently depending on what you want out of the trip. But, you know, certainly, you know, an exploratory spearfishing trip, you, you never want to go into it. Like I have to, you know, I'm going there because I think I'm going to shoot this type of fish and whatever. And if I don't get it, I'm disappointed and the trip sucks. You can never go into it like that. You never know what's going to happen. But, but, you know, if you're, if you're someone that, you know, kind of an inexperienced traveler, you know, or spearfishing to travel and, and going to a place you haven't been to, like I said, obviously having the right contacts is certainly like your first step in, you know, helping you have success there. So that's the first thing, of course, going into it with the right gear um, and understanding the level of experience needed and what the challenges are going to be. So you can prep yourself, whether it be depths or, you know, even visibility, you know, you have guys like, you know, growing up where, you know, on the East coast diving, you know, Long Island, we're used to dirty water, dirt, cold, dirty, cold water. And then you get guys that have never kind of dove in those conditions. And if you go to a place like, for example, Panama, sometimes we're diving in dirty water there. And, and, you know, you get guys that come from more like, tropical setting or Florida guys that are used to, to clear water and are and not only used to clear water, but are also used to diving with sharks all the time. And they come to Panama where sometimes the water is really dirty, but there aren't really sharks are not a problem there because they've unfortunately basically killed them all. But, you know, so they show up and they're like immediately kind of thrown off because they're, they're assuming that every time they shoot a fish, there's going to be, you know, a hundred sharks on the thing and they're, and they've got 10 feet of visibility. So you know, just being prepared for things like that, you know, you gotta, you gotta have, you gotta know what you're, what you're getting yourself into. And then of course, like I said, equipment, you know, showing up with the right equipment. I mean, even, even something that might sound as silly as like having the right wetsuit, you know, you show up to a place and you underestimate, you know, what the water temps are going to be. And if, you know, you're, you're, you come in with a suit that's, you know, not adequate for, for, for the water and you know you could ruin a trip like that because you're freezing freezing your balls off and and you can't hold your breath because you're freezing cold or um you know sweating sweating (laughs) so right you know there's a whole whole bunch of stuff like that that you just got to make sure you know you're prepared for cool and then certainly you know staying in shape too helps (laughs) 
This episode is brought to you by Neptonics Spearfishing. Uh, go check out neptonics.com for the absolute best, most reliable spearfishing gear at some of the best prices in the market as well. Uh, the thing that I like about Neptonics is you know the gear has been tested on there and they're not going to have some generic crap on there. It's all gear that works and people use it every day uh, with great results. So don't forget to put in the Spear Factor 10 promo code to get 10% off. Neptonics.com So I get this question a lot as far as can I recommend a charter? And I absolutely can. Lineage Charters here in San Diego uh, does giant bluefin tuna trips, uh, multi-day trips, and Captain Bly is your guy. He's got over 30 years of spearfishing and commercial fishing experience. So be sure to check out lineagecharters.com for offshore action. One story I would really want to hear is the Wahoo story. Uh, your Wahoo fish that I believe you shot, it was well over 100 pounds with Tim Hatler down in Baja. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's actually a couple funny stories from that day. I was, uh, I was with the, the, I was with this guy, um, and his dad and it's, there's these two brothers. They're from California. They're freaking awesome. Uh, this guy, Brett and his brother Blake and their dad, who's the man, he's a character. And I, who was I with? Was I with, I was okay. Blake had come down that season. This is a pretty, pretty long time ago, but I was running, um, I was running trips over on the Pacific side for Tim. We were doing these trips where we, uh, we were like staying out at this kind of remote camp on uh, on an island over on the Pacific side, and like going out to a couple different spots and shooting blue water fish and and all that stuff. So, anyways, back uh, bay area is that what? Yeah, yeah. That, that kind of area. So Blake had come down earlier in the season, and uh, a lot of this stuff's all coming to me, man. This is uh, this is cool. This is funny. So Blake had come down earlier in the season. We had a blast. The guy's a total character. Actually, funny enough, I re- on that trip somebody stepped on on one of blake's masks in the boat and it like shattered and i took the mask and i put it up i like stuck it up in the restaurant at palapas ventana like i hung it up in the rafters and then when when blake and his blake's brother and his dad then came down i told his dad we were like in the restaurant the first night i'm like man blake fucking guy's crazy he dove so deep he fucking shattered the pressure shattered his mask i fucking hung it up and his dad like believe the story his dad's like oh deep diver but yeah really funny so anyways we were we it was the day we were leaving to drive over to the pacific side and it's a pretty long drive and we would drive over um tim had he probably still has it he had this big old suburban and we'd like cook a trailer like this little enclosed trailer on the back of it and we'd have like the gear and like coolers full of ice and everything in there so on that trip it was it was brett and his dad and then we had this um ukrainian guy he's the man i haven't seen this guy in years awesome diver really cool guy a guy by the name of andre lagutin who he was like big like competitive he would like you know he was in the world's the world championship a couple times whatever and uh he ran like a spear fishing free dive school over in russia or the ukraine he was a really really cool guy really good diver and he was coming down to do this trip with us with um a client of his who i think was a russian guy super nice guy he didn't speak any english his client and the guy he had like one one of his eyes was like fucked up he had like a white eye i think he's blind when i but uh cool really cool guy so it was like the day like i said the day we were going to drive over there and we weren't going to drive over till like in later in the afternoon so we kind of opted to uh to like go out for like just a fun day of diving and uh, i was I basically i was going out to try to shoot some fish before we did this trip and i and i brought um blake or sorry brett along and there there might have been someone else with us but in any event we went out it was like a win it was i think it was in november that year it was it was kind of a shitty day it was pretty windy you know this was on the sea of cortez and we went out and I think we had done a couple drifts. It was actually like really slow. And the spot we were on is a spot that does get good, you know, late in the year for big Wahoo, but it's on or off. It's either like a dead zone or they're there. But when they are there that time of year, they're usually pretty big. I've shot a couple pretty big ones there. Um, and I had just 
gone back up current for a drift. I had a flasher in the water and I literally, I was like one of those things I had my head kind of turned on the surface and I turned my head back over to look at the flasher and this, like, it was almost like we both startled each other. There was this wahoo right on the flasher. And I didn't, you know, certainly didn't realize how big it was. And I actually almost missed that fish. I almost shot high over the fish. And I was using at the time I was using, uh, I'm sure you've heard of a Ulu sub spear guns. They're made by a guy, John Huberman, kind of actually a legendary guy. Um, awesome guy. And I had been, he was giving me all my guns. I would go to his shop and like, stayed with him for a couple of weeks and build guns. We actually came out with this signature model called the El Bandito. I don't know if he still makes it. It was like a big tuna gun. Anyways, I was shooting an Ulu sub with a reel on it, almost shot over the back of that fish, hit it like high, kind of like up on its back, but it was, you know, the, the, it was on a downward angle. So the, the tip, I don't think the tip even toggled, um, but it, it, you know, but it was ended up being a good holding shot. You know, the fish ran, I ended up landing that fish. I don't even think I put a second shot in it and I landed it with a reel obviously and got it, the fish in the boat. And of course, you know, by, by the time I got the fish to the boat, I was like, man, this is a freaking big Wahoo. And for me at that time, a hundred pound Wahoo was like going back to what we were talking about earlier. That was like a benchmark number for me. It was like a, my dream fish, you know? Right. And uh, so we got the fish to the boat and I started realizing shit it's a pretty big fish. And the guy running the boat, um, is a guy that's worked for Tim forever. Who's the man, a guy by the name of Yoni and Yoni. I remember Yoni like pulling that fish in the boat. He was laughing his ass off and he's like, shit, man, this is a big fish. He's like, I think it's like 90 pounds. I'm like, shit, that's good fish. So we get in the boat and we're like looking at it. We're like, damn dude, that's a good fish. And then I, I sat on the back. It was in a ponga. I sat on the back of the ponga, like on one of the live wells to take a photo with the fish. And we put the fish in my lap. And it was like hanging over either side of the boat. And that's when I kind of realized I was like, shit, this is a good Wahoo. And I remember calling uh, Tim on the radio and I was like, man, I think we got a hundred pound Wahoo in the boat. And he said something like really funny back. I forget what he said, but, but anyways, we, uh, we ended up, it was, we, we, we kept diving and we actually took, it was funny. We, there was, you know, they have the, um, those Bimini, you know, canvas Bimini tops on those pongas, you know, that you like, they have like the zipper cover on them and then they fold out. And yep. it was folded up. So we took that cover off that zippers over it and used that to cover the fish to keep the sun off it. Cause we couldn't put, we had nowhere to put the fish. So um, yeah, we dove a little bit more and then we, we came back to the beach and it was like midday and it was, you know, it was fun, man. Everyone came down to see that fish and we threw it on the scale and it was like, I think it was one twelve or something like that or, or one fourteen. And it was a really good fish. I was pumped up. And then we kind of rushed out of there after we cut the fish up you know, to, to start making our way over to, uh, to the Pacific side. So we like loaded everyone up in, in the suburban. It was myself, Brett, his dad, and then Andre and his client. And we like load up that trailer and we're like rushing our, our rushing our way over to the Pacific. And so we were driving on that road that goes from Ventana to La Paz. And at the time it was like all potholed and kind of fucked up. So we're, we were coming up, uh, we, I was stuck behind this like minivan. They were driving super slow. It was like frustrating me. And we were like driving, you know, around all those crazy turns. And there's like, you know, some of them have like these drop-offs, like cliffs off the side of the turns. It's all pottled. So I finally get to a point where I can pass this minivan and I kind of like, like put the pedal down and like get past this, this car and we're cruising along. And all of a sudden I think it was Brett's like, dude, the trailer and I like look back. And basically the freaking trailer is next to us, like matching our speed. It had on the, it was never locked into the ball hitch. So the trailer came off and those, you know, the, we had the chains on there, of course, and the hooks that were on the chains just straightened out. And this freaking trailer came off the freaking suburban and was like matching our speed. Like, and I watched this thing go off the road, like into the, like all this dust coming up and it goes like, it disappears into the mesquite trees. And I'm like, Oh, shit like this is going to be a yard sale this is a situation we just destroyed so we stopped the car turn around we go back and this trailer had like thank god it wasn't all on like the side of one of these cliffs because we would have lost the whole thing but we went back and the trailer had actually miraculously it was like intact tires were still inflated nothing was like torn off the thing and it had flipped over in these mesquite trees of course everything inside like the, all the ice out of the coolers the gear was all over the so we ended up like 
I think we like took everything out. It was funny. And like people kind of stopped on the side of the road to watch. We like took everything out of the trailer, tied a rope to the axle, flipped it over with the back over with the suburban and then like dragged it out with the car. I think a bunch of us picked it up, you know, by, by the front of the trailer and like spun it around and then hooked everything back up. And like, we were like back up and running. And I remember calling Tim and being like, like after we were all squared away and I'm like, I'm like, Hey, and he picks up the phone. I'll never forget it. He picks up and he's like, he goes, yo, Wahoo, Wahoo World Record Hotline, bitching, man. Nice. Because he hadn't seen the fish. So he's like, dude, sick fish. That's awesome. And I'm like, yeah, thanks, man. It was killer. It was awesome. And then I'm like, listen, I, I kind of have a little bit of bad news. And he's like, oh, no, what happened? And I'm like, you're not going to believe this. The trailer came off the, the hitch. We it went, And he's like, oh, no, no. And I'm like, yeah, and it went off into the freaking trees the thing flipped over and he's like no and i'm like yeah but don't worry we got we got everything back squared away we flipped it over we hooked it back up all the gear we're back on our way and there was this pause and he's like yeah man fucking bitch you dude awesome fish like that was, he was just you can tell he was so stoked we got, and i remember brett's dad when we got that trailer back on he was he got such a kick out of the whole thing i remember he was like laughing he was like jumping up and down and just laughing because it was like he just thought he got the biggest kick out of it. You know, it was like this whole just crazy scenario. And then next thing you know, we're back up and running. And then funny enough, we get like 10 minutes back into the drive and Brett's dad remembers he left his fucking wetsuit back at freaking Palavas Ventana. So it was this whole thing. We had to like stop at La Paz. They had to send someone out with the wetsuit, this whole thing. And we ended up, um, we ended up having a really epic trip over there. Actually, the weather was a little tough, but we, we had a situation that we were, we were at one of our offshore spots and, this was the second time I'd seen this out there. There was this crazy Wahoo aggregation. I don't know if it was like some type of uh, migration or spawning activity. I mean, schools of like hundreds of the things, like all you could shoot, not big fish, like 30 to 50 pounds, but it was, it was crazy. And actually another funny story from that trip cut me off if I'm, if I'm dragging this on too much, but, uh, no, it's beautiful. I love it. I think everybody you know, can relate to the shit show and then you pull it off and it's just yeah, like, that's like a total Baja thing, like oh, classic yeah. Baja story. Like everything goes to complete shit. And then like you pull some, something like right out of your ass and you're like back up and going. Um, so, <laughs> so true. So true. Yeah. It's like classic. Clearly like, you've been there. <laughs> uh, like a hundred times, like in way yeah. crazier than that. But, but um, so one more funny story from that trip. So we ended up, you know, we're, we, we made it over to the Pacific side and we had what was definitely the best day of diving the whole trip. It was, it was like one of those like late in the year, overcast, kind of windy, kind of cold Pacific side days. And, you know, the water over there during that time of year can cool down. Like it was in, you know, it was probably in like the, you know, probably 72 degrees or something. It was kind of cold. Maybe, maybe 72 to 75, degrees, whatever it was. This but it was, Nove- it was a little November? chilly. Is this November? Yeah, it was, it was November. It might even been like kind of the end of November. So, um, so the day, this particular day when we, when we had all those Wahoo, um, the night before that guy, Andre, had brought into where we were staying the wetsuit bottoms of his client to like, repair something he was sewing something on him so we go offshore the next day and he forgot this guy's wetsuit bottoms back at the camp so we get all the way out there and he's like shit and it was cold like you had to wear a wetsuit so andre gives the guy his wetsuit bottoms and wears nothing under his top like nothing like his naked from like the waist down and dude this guy was it was so it was fucking <laughs> it was mayhem because it was like all you could shoot wahoo and there was like a big school of Wanchinango. And then, of course, like big yellowtails down deep. So it was just like, it was one of those days. Everyone's like pumped up mayhem. And Andre had his freaking beaver tail up, like clipped in. And like, that was so funny. So his fucking, I hope I'm not getting too graphic. For this oh, no, too. I can just picture his balls hanging out Dude, on both sides. Dude, balls hanging out something. one side and his freaking schlong, like, <laughs> hanging, this, like long skinny schlong hanging out the other. And I just remember <sighs> this one moment, right? It was like mayhem. And I'm in the boat, like reloading a gun for someone. And he's getting in or, or getting out of the boat. And he's sitting on the edge of the pong with his dick hanging out one side and his balls the other. And I look at him and we just start fucking cracking up it was the funniest thing man it was such a that was a really fun i mean you know i've done hundreds and hundreds of trips and some of them like there's just stuff that that stands out because it was either funny or whatever and that was 
certainly one of those moments, but yeah, it was, it was a classic, a lot of like funny laughs on that trip and some, and some really great diving. So yeah, but that, that goes all the way back to that day. I guess I shot that big Wahoo. It's pretty cool. That's beautiful. I know that like I've talked to, I had the pleasure of talking to some pretty accomplished divers. And one thing that everybody that mentions it is you and uh, guys like you and Cam um, with all the, you know, the guide services starting up, there's really people that have the connections, like you had mentioned before, the connections and the experience to really put people on fish. Because going back to what you were talking about, um, because I have done this too, the whole, you know, adventure and try to find new spots and go to areas where you've never been before. And that's really great if you have time. And I do, fortunately, like that's why I think the Baja, near Baja kind of thing, uh, Northern Baja is easy. Central Baja is easy for me to do that. But for people that don't have, you know, they get one trip a year, like they need the best guide they can get to get them on fish. And then hopefully they can, they're good enough to take care of the rest. But like I said, I mean, everybody uh, mentions, uh, speaks of you very highly. So I just thought it was a necessity to have you on the show. And then here you are talking about the hundreds of trips that you've done. And I know you're not bullshitting, but there's something to be said about that much experience that um, I think truly sets you apart from a lot of people. Um, so yeah, if I want, if, if people want to go on a dive with you, how do they get in contact with you? Yeah. Yeah. Good question. Um, and I, and I appreciate you saying all that. It feels good to really, to, to hear that. And I will say uh, with all that said, you know, going back to like, when I say, you know, we're talking about like what it takes to put yourself on a good trip or whatever. And, you know, I said, the number one thing is certainly like resources, like having contacts in certain areas. And I will say that, you know, for me, you know, I, a lot of this stuff I couldn't or can't do without the help of other people, you know, guys like Tim Hatler, who's a Baja legend. He's the absolute, the man, Tim's the man, um, my buddy, Eric down in Africa, whatever it might be. So, um, you know, there's always, it, it, a lot of times it's like a team effort and, and it's having those relationships that, um, certainly like helps in the, in the success of all that. But, um, yeah, in terms of, uh, for me, contacting me, the easiest way is usually email. And, you know, I know this goes back to what I was saying to you earlier before we actually started this podcast up earlier, but yeah, I'm really bad at times with getting back to people. So I just always tell everyone, I'm like, don't anyone that knows me doesn't like take offense to it because they get it. But like, if, if, uh, if someone tries to reach out to me for something and I don't immediately respond, just keep hitting me up until I do, because it, it doesn't bother me to, to, to be pestered. And it, and it keeps me, keeps me like on my toes with getting back to people. But yeah, my, my email address is my full name, Peter Coriel at gmail.com. And that's always the best way to, to get in touch with me for anything, um, be it spearfishing trips or anything spearfishing related. So do you have any social media? I mean, I actually think, I mean, I saw your social media page, but overall it's you, you, I'm assuming you're working the whole time because you're pretty quiet on social media compared to most uh, other spear fishermen, I guess you could say more uh, spearfishing guides. Uh, yeah. Which um, I, I kind of think that's a testament to your experience level. So the people that know, they know <laughs> more than anything. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah. It's, uh, I, I certainly, uh, I have like mixed feelings about social media. I mean, I certainly use it and, uh, it's what probably Instagram specifically for a while, there was like one of the best tools for promoting any type of business or whatever, but I'm kind of like spotty with it. Sometimes I'm, I'm putting stuff up on there consistently. Sometimes I'm not, sometimes I just kind of go dark on it because I do certainly well, for one thing, kind of like what you said, I mean, half the time I'm just either so busy, I'm either diving on a trip or on a hunting trip or traveling or whatever. And I don't really even have much time to, to, to go on there. Or I try to force myself to not, you know, be on there because I don't think it's always the best use of time. So, 
Um, but I do try to, I do try to keep up with it. I mean, for me too, I also kind of like, you know, you try, you all, I mean, I think everyone wants this, you know, you always want to try to put up like good content. So it's, you know, sometimes you're, it's like, oh, do I really like, did I get really any good content out of this trip I just did that's worth putting up? I, I honestly, I wish I was like better with the video stuff. Um, and typically whenever I do, that's like a passion of mine. I love doing, you know, film type of stuff. And, um, and I, you know, I have guys that I work with a couple guys in particular that are really great videographers and editors and all that stuff. So I, um, you know, I'm, that's when I usually do anything video or film related. I try to do it with someone professional, but I wish I was better at, um, doing just short video stuff and, and editing and, and, you know, putting more stuff like that up on, on the, on the social things. But, um, but yeah, I, the, I, the Instagram, I, I did that, see, um, I, I did see on your page, you took part in a project, uh, recently, what, um, where you had like, uh, there was some boating stuff. What was that all about? Mm, uh, if I'm trying to think which, which one you're talking about, are you talking about the Yamaha thing? Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, that was actually really cool. That was a really fun project. That was um, actually the the production company that did that was or, or is based out of California. It's a, called Sweatpants Media. Really, really awesome group of people. Um, and I was hired by them in Yamaha to do a film promoting um, this one of their new boats that actually a jet boat that they had come out with. That actually, funny enough, was going in it. I was kind of like. Eh, it's like you know is this really like a boat people are going to use to like fish or spearfish off of whatever and it actually was a really cool little boat and actually really really conducive for spearfishing because there's no props to get chopped up in and it's got like this whole big swim platform off the back it was actually a really cool little boat and uh yeah so we shot like a promotional film down in Alamorada and the keys super fun we ended up actually getting and actually funny enough there was one of the guys shooting I was just going through your, your podcast earlier. Um, and, and I started listening to the one with that guy, Nathan, uh-huh. who's a super cool guy. He was on that. He worked on that, uh, Yamaha gig. He was, um, like one of the guys filming underwater, super cool guy. I really enjoyed hanging out with him. Yeah. Nathan and, Mita. Uh, yes. Yeah. Super good great guy. He's guy. a good guy. Yeah. Good diver. Great, great videographer. We actually, it was funny. I showed up you know, I ha- kind of had, you know, those, those, whenever you, you know, any type of like higher production uh, uh, project like that, you know, things are pretty set in stone in terms of like, you know, they, for most people, they're like, listen, like this, you know, the, they, you negotiate like what you're going to get paid. And it's like, you know, half days and full days and anything more than that, like people are, you know, you're not going to do it unless you're getting paid or whatever. But I kind of went into it. Like I had some time, and I was, I think I was already down in Florida right before then or something. So I went down early. I was like, listen, I'll come down early and just help out. I don't care, whatever. Um, so the day, it was like the day before the shoot officially started. I actually, funny enough, I went down. It was like a couple of days before the shoot started because Jerry and, uh, and our other buddy Hunter were going down there to shoot Wahoos. So they were like, oh, come down and, uh, and shoot some fish with us. So I met him down there. I actually drove, I was like in Lauderdale. I had my truck down there. I drove down to, to the keys and met those guys. And we went out, the weather was horrible. We shot a couple of fish and then Jerry's like, dude, we're going out tonight. You know, Jerry's a maniac. He's like, we're going to go out. And then, and I'm like, yeah, I was kind of like, I was going to like, I was actually that night, the, the production crew were like, you know, we, they had all these uh, Airbnbs for the whole staff and everything. They're like, yeah, you know, there's come on, come whenever we're here. So my plan was to like go over there and meet everyone and to be kind of like fresh for the next day and like whatever. And Jerry's like, no, come out, stay with us. Dude, we were out till like <laughs> freaking six in the, I don't know, five in the morning, whatever it was. <laughs> and then I basically like slept for like maybe an hour or whatever. And then I cruised over to this Airbnb to meet the crew. I remember I was, I was kind of embarrassed. I'm like, shit. You know, I like cruise into this airbnb to meet all these people i had never met before that i'm about to do this stinking (laughs) yeah brutal and uh but funny enough we actually went they were like oh let's you know that was like a a down day before this thing officially started and they were like oh you know we have we have they have the the the, i think the official boat we were filming wasn't even there yet but we had all the other boats you know the the um 
the secondary boats that we that they use to film off of. and they're like we have use of one of the boats let's go out and we can mess around and i was like yeah sounds great and in my head i'm like jesus i feel like i'm gonna die right now and we ended up going out and nathan was there and we were like screw it let's we might as well film you know just in case whatever because the underwater stuff's always the hardest stuff to get and funny enough we ended up actually getting some like really great clips that first day that they ended up using in the film and yeah it was really it was great diving and hanging out with Nathan. He was just a really, really cool guy. Everyone on that whole, I still stay in touch with them. They were just super cool people. It was a really, really great project. And, and the final product product was really, really cool. It was really neat. It was cool to see, you know, listen, nowadays, you know, the way everything's gone with social media and just every, you know, the type of marketing content everyone's trying to do. It's, it's, it was cool to see. I think that was Yamaha's first kind of, step towards doing you know a different type of marketing campaign where they were doing more Uh of a lifestyle thing you know it's the same thing as like yeti kind of started that whole thing you know like really creating like this like lifestyle content based around a quote-unquote lifestyle brand so it was cool to to be involved in that and see them kind of kind of go in that direction it was a really really fun project wow super cool it sounds yeah that's the one thing i'll say about social media that's great is you do meet um, and get in touch with that makes the world a much smaller place for good and bad, I guess. Right. Yeah. So, but the good thing is you can kind of limit the amount of bullshit you deal with. Um, but well, Peter, I don't want to take up all your time, but thank you so much for meeting me on a whim like this. And, um, I'd love to have you back on the show and, uh, hear from you after your, uh, Africa adventures and things like that. Um, sure. I know Jerry said he was doing another trip and he wanted to come back on. Um, But thanks again so much. All right, that concludes the show for today. Thank you, Peter, for being a guest. And if you guys are interested in linking up with Peter for a uh, spearfishing trip, uh, you can reach him at petercoriel at gmail.com. That's last name spelled C-O-R-R-E-A-L-E at gmail.com. All right, you guys. Thanks. Take care. You'd think with four of us spread out on a tiny island that the task of tagging a whitetail would not be a big thing. But as I've learned, no matter where I've been, whitetails can be damn tricky. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Spend your Saturdays with life on the water. Join Captain Brandon Simmons for fishing, diving, travel, and so much more. You want to succeed. You want to fish. You want to be one of the greatest. Oh, look at that thing, dude. Wow. Oh. <laughs> Let's see what kind of trouble we can get into today. Don't miss Life on the Water every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. <laughs> the destination for outdoor entertainment.